everybody how you guys doing today feeling good all right well it's good to have you and thanks for braving the weather uh to be with us here this morning it's good to see you and also if you're joining us on live stream uh just like colin said a moment ago thanks for joining us we're glad you're able to be with us uh that way and so i'm really excited today we're actually continuing in a series we've been in for the past several weeks that is called Activated. And if you're just joining us, uh, what we're doing in this series is we're actually looking together at this incredible book in the New Testament. We're looking at the book of Acts. And we've actually spent several weeks kind of doing that together. And, uh, and so if you're just joining us, we're really glad you're able to be with us. Welcome to the conversation. And I actually thought that today, um, based on what we're about to read and what we're about to look at, I thought it actually might be good if I first started today by asking a question. I thought maybe I'd ask you guys a question as a way to kind of get our minds and our thinking in the right direction of what is about we're about to read today. So here's the question I want to ask you, all right? Uh, I want to ask you, can you recall a time, can you think of a time where you felt like an outcast? Okay, so just think back in your memory bank. Can you remember or recall a time that you felt like you were an outcast, that you felt like you were an outsider, that you felt like you were excluded, right? That there was a a group or maybe a a segment of your family or whoever might have been that you wanted to find acceptance with, but for some reason you felt like you were excluded and you couldn't find acceptance uh, within that group. I want you just to imagine that. And my guess is if you actually just take a couple of minutes and think about that, uh, it's probably not going to be very long before you can probably think of some experiences that you have felt that way, that you felt like an outcast. And I think the reason is because all of us have had that experience, right? We've all felt like outcasts at one point or another in our life. Uh, I know for me, when I think about um, that, that feeling of being like an outcast, the, the most pronounced memory that comes to my mind is when I was a freshman in high school. And so um, for me, when I was a freshman, I was brand new at the school that I went to. And so I kind of walked in. I didn't know anybody. And I just remember feeling like I was on the outside. I remember feeling like, man, all these people grew up together and these people know each other. I don't know anybody. And I just felt like I did not belong. And maybe the, the clearest place that I felt that was in the cafeteria uh, at my high school. Um, I don't know what the cafeteria was like in your high school or what it's like in your high school if you go to school, but my guess is they're probably all a little bit the same, uh, that high school cafeterias tend to be the place where you can most clearly see the different segmented tribes of your school, right? And so each table has its own, I guess, sort of its own aura, and it has its own like unspoken code of entry, that if you want to sit at this table, there's certain unspoken requirements. And so the jocks sit over here, and the academics sit over here, and you know whatever group of people sit over here, and so on and so forth. And I just remember walking into that cafeteria, and I was a very shy and introverted person. 
I remember just thinking, like, I don't belong in any of these places. I feel like a total outcast. And I made the big mistake, and in the first several weeks of high school, I sat by myself in the cafeteria. And I just remember that feeling of just dreading lunch. I dreaded it, and I'd sit by myself, and I would look around, and I would just feel like, man, I just feel like I'm an outcast. You know, like, I belong. And of course, it was only a matter of weeks before I finally mustered up the courage to be like, I got to change this. And I went to a table, and I introduced myself, and I asked if I could sit with a certain table, and they said yes, and all that happened. But for me, that was the time that I felt by that the most. I felt like an outcast. Now, the reason I'm asking that question is because of this. I think that inside of every single one of us, there is stamped inside of us a desire and a need to feel like we can have a tribe or we can have a group where we experience acceptance and we experience belonging. I think it's something that God has actually wired inside of us. We want to belong somewhere. Even though we want to express ourselves as individuals, we, we still can't get over this need to feel like there's belonging and acceptance that we find. And one of our greatest fears is to experience rejection or to feel like we're unaccepted or that we are excluded. So, so why do I bring that up? Well, the reason I bring it up is because we are talking right now about the mission of Jesus. We said the book of Acts is going to help us, it's really going to help us see and rediscover the mission of Jesus. We said that the book of Acts is going to help us rediscover the message, which we actually spent several weeks talking about that. And we said the book of Acts is also going to help us rediscover the mission of Jesus. In other words, the question we're asking is, what is the mission that Jesus is on in this world? Or maybe a more personal way to ask the question is for those of us who follow Christ, which I know is not everybody here today, some of you are still investigating Jesus, but for those of us who are following Christ, the real question is, what does it look like for us to live on Jesus's mission? What does it look like for us as God's people to live on mission? And as we've been exploring that question, I think today we're gonna discover something in the book of Acts that I think is very central to understanding what it means to live on mission, and it's this, that Jesus's mission is a mission to the outcast. That Jesus's mission, that if we really wanna understand the mission of Christ, we have to understand that it is a mission to the outcast. What does it mean to live on mission for Jesus? It means that we live on a mission to the outcast. That's what we're going to see. So to show you what I'm talking about, I want to invite you to grab your Bibles and go with me to, um, to Acts chapter 8. Okay, so if you've got your Bibles, why don't you go ahead and flip there. Acts 8 is where we're going to go. If you did not bring a Bible of your own, uh, feel free to use one of the ones under the chairs. Page 889 is where you're going to find Acts 8. And uh, if you don't own a Bible, we say this all the time, we would love for you to have it. You can take it home, make that a gift must to you, and I want you to have a Bible. All right, so Acts 8. Now, as you're flipping there, I actually want to invite you, once you get there, to do something that's going to sound kind of strange. Usually, we just start reading the chapter right away. But before we do that, before we zoom in, I actually want to ask you to zoom out with me for a minute. Okay, so I want you to zoom out, and I want you to look at chapter 8 and chapter 9, kind of like uh, from a higher level. And I want you just to pay attention real quick to the, the section headings. So do you guys know what a section heading is? Section heading is almost like, a, it looks like a headline before some text. So depending on what kind of Bible you have, your section headings in chapter eight and chapter nine should probably look something like this. Okay, so it's gonna say, beginning of chapter eight, the church persecuted and scattered. Okay, and there's some texts. And then it's gonna say, Philip in Samaria. And it's going to give you some text. And then it's going to say, Simon the sorcerer, which you're like, that's interesting. I got to read that later. And then after that, it's going to say Philip in the Ethiopian. And then in chapter nine, it's going to start off and say Saul's conversion. So here's the headlines. This is kind of what you're going to see throughout chapter eight and chapter nine. Now, why is this important? Okay, listen, the reason I want you to zoom out 
is because I believe that what's happening in chapter eight and chapter nine is something that is absolutely revolutionary. And I think chapter eight and chapter nine is gonna show us something that is, is that, that the book of Acts is trying to reveal to us. It's trying to help us to discover. See, because up to this point, in chapters one to seven in the book of Acts, everything that's been happening has been happening in Jerusalem. And so the, gospel, the message of the gospel and the mission of Jesus has being, been being preached only to the Jewish people. But now, for the very first time, beginning in chapter eight, you're gonna see that the gospel and the mission of Jesus move outside of Jerusalem. It starts to go outward. And I think what Acts is trying to show us is not just that the mission of Jesus is to go out, but how the mission of Jesus is to go out. And how does the mission of Jesus go out? It goes out to the outcasts. You're gonna see that the message of Jesus goes to some of the most unlikely people and to some of the most unlikely places. Namely, I think that what we're gonna see in today's text is we're gonna see three unlikely audiences, three unlikely categories of outcasts. What are we gonna see? Here's what we're gonna see. The mission is to the outcasts. It's first off, it's a mission to the obvious sinner. Number two, it's a mission to the socially excluded. And number three, it is a mission to the angry Pharisee. I think what we're gonna see is that this mission is to the outcasts. There's three kinds of outcasts we're gonna see today. One kind of outcast is the obvious sinner. Another outcast is the socially excluded. And the third outcast is the angry Pharisee. So we're gonna look at this here together. Now, let me just give you a fair warning before we jump into the text. I, uh, as I was preparing this message over the past couple of weeks, uh, and as I've delivered it last uh, couple of times, I, I actually have kind of got this impression that this message uh, probably has the potential to maybe be offensive to some of you who are here today or some of you who are watching online. Every message has the, has the potential to do that. But I think this message maybe in a special way has um, some potential to offend you. And I actually think when we approach the Bible that that's an okay thing. It's, a, it's actually an okay thing to be offended by the Bible because it, it means it's changing us and it's challenging us and that's always a good thing. But I do want you to know that that's not my goal. Like my goal is never just to set out to be like, I'm gonna offend me some people today. Like that's never what I'm waking up thinking. But here's what I wanna say. If you do find yourself offended by something that we say here today, I actually wanna encourage you, would you do this? Would you not tune me out? Would you not, would you not, would you, would you stick with me to the very end? And the reason is because if I preach this sermon correctly, I believe by the end of today's message, everyone should be offended, all right? So I don't know if that's encouraging or discouraging, but that's, I think that's, I guess what's gonna go. All right, so let's, let's talk this through. The mission is to the outcast. First off, the obvious sinner. Who is that? Who are you talking about when you talk about the obvious sinner? Well, I want you to look at the beginning of chapter eight, how it starts. So it says, Saul approved of their killing him. That's a whole story in itself. We'll come back to that. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem. And all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria and godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. He went from house to house, and he dragged off both men and women, and he put them into prison. All right, so what's going on here? So I understand that maybe we're jumping in without any context. So here's, here's what's going on. In Acts chapter 7, we're introduced to this guy named Stephen. Stephen preaches this sermon. He's a Jewish man who preaches this sermon to a Jewish audience, and it was so offensive. His sermon was so offensive about Jesus that they literally killed him. And so he was the first what we call martyr. He was killed because of his faith and his declaration of, of faith in Jesus Christ. And what happens is after Stephen is killed, it's almost like they declared open season on the church. 
And so now there's this widespread persecution. Christians are getting thrown in jail. They're being killed because of their belief. And the Bible's gonna say because of that, they scatter outside of Jerusalem. They leave from Jerusalem. And where do they go? Look what the Bible says. It says all of them, except for the apostles, left Jerusalem and they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria is where they started to go. Now, why is this important? Here's why this is important. If you've been with us in this series, when you hear Judea and Samaria, that's supposed to remind you of something. That is supposed to be a hyperlink right back to a promise that Jesus made at the very beginning of the book of Acts. And what did Jesus say? Here's what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. Jesus said, but you, to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes. That happened in Acts 2. And you're gonna be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's Acts 1 to 7. And then in Judea and Samaria, you see, and then all the way to the ends of the earth. You guys, I think that here we actually, we actually discover the mission of Jesus, but I think we also discover a really important truth here. And here's the truth. The truth is that even in times of persecution and even in times of apparent setback, the promise and the mission of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. The persecution sets in. Trouble sets in. For the Christians, this had to have been a confusing time, and yet what we see is that Jesus is still in control and that his mission is still moving forward. And where does it go? Well, look what it says in verse four. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So check this out. This is awesome. The Bible's gonna say now these followers of Jesus, they start preaching the gospel everywhere they go. This is unbelievable. This is scandalous because it used to be that if you wanted to experience God and you wanted to have a relationship with God, you had to go to Jerusalem. You had to go to the temple. But now Jerusalem is coming to you. The gospel is coming into unlikely places. And where does it go? Look at this. Philip, who, by the way, was not one of the original 12 disciples, but he was a follower of Jesus. Philip went down to a city in, say it with me, Samaria. And he proclaimed the message of the gospel or the, the Messiah there. Now, I gotta tell you, this is one of those verses that you and I can read right past and we don't even think twice about it. We're like, okay, you went to Samaria. I don't really know where that is, but that seems like it's probably an ancient place or something like that. But I want you to understand that the mention of Samaria, that this would have been to a first century reader, this would have been something that was completely unorthodox. Here is a Jewish man, Philip, who is going and proclaiming the gospel to a group of people in Samaria. This would have been something that would have been absolutely unorthodox. Now, why is that? Well, because the tension that existed between these two people groups, the Jews and Samaritans, you guys, it's no exaggeration for me to say that by the time of the book of Acts, this tension had existed for over, uh, for over 10,000, or for over 1,000 years, over 1,000 years. Let me just give you a high level, this is a super high level backstory of the tension that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. So here's what we know. Samaritans were actually originally part of the 12 tribes of Israel. So the Jews and the Samaritans originally were all part of the same group. They were part of the same nation a long time ago. However, in the 10th century, so a thousand years before the book of Acts, in the, the 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel defected and they made Samaria their capital. You can read about that in 2 Kings 17. So 10 of the tribes basically said, we're, we're out of here and we're gonna, and the Bible says they began to worship idols and they made their own capital city of Samaria. This is where the tension began. Well, it only increased because by the eighth century, Samaria was captured by the Assyrians and they started to adopt foreign religions 
and they started to intermarry. So to the Jewish people, the Samaritans were basically half-breeds, both of religion and in race. To put it in Harry Potter language, they were like mudbloods. And so you're like, you don't associate with, with the Samaritans. So there's a tension that was there. It only further increased in the sixth century. The Samaritans actually offered to help the Jewish people reconstruct the temple that had been destroyed. And the Jewish people were like, no, we don't want your help. Yeah, right, no way, get real, get out of here. And that only increased the tension between them. And then in the fourth century, the Samaritans actually even built their own temple. They said, we're gonna build our own temple. And so the Samaritans had this kind of like this weird gumbo, like this religious gumbo they created. It had a little bit of Judaism in it and it had a little bit of pagan religion and a little bit of occult practices and a little bit of their own making. And they basically said, we're gonna worship God the way we wanna worship God. And so by the first century, you can imagine, this tension was long established and it was deep-rooted. This had existed for over a thousand years. In fact, when you read the gospels and you read about Jesus, you're gonna see this tension was there. Some of you might remember, on one occasion, Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in a place called Samaria. And Jesus actually talked to her. He said, would you get me a drink? And she was flabbergasted by this. And why? Here's what it says. Samaritan woman said, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan. How is it that you're asking me for a drink? Why are you talking to me? Because Jews don't associate with Samaritans. Everyone knew about this. Jews don't talk to Samaritans. Some of you might remember on another occasion in Luke chapter nine, Jesus and his disciples, the Bible's gonna say they were going through Samaria and the Samaritan people didn't welcome him there. They, did, they wouldn't welcome them there because they were going to Jerusalem. And so what did James and John say? They said, you know what? We should pray for them and we should ask that you forgive them, Jesus. That's not what they said. They said, Lord, can you call down fire from heaven and destroy them? <laughs> Jesus nuke them, right? They're Samaritans. So, so the tension, the tension between, and here, here's the point I'm trying to make. You guys, the Samaritans, they were the obvious sinner. They were the obvious sinner. They were living in ways that were clearly opposed to the law of God. And because of that, to the Jewish people, they were viewed as morally deplorable. These guys don't keep the law. They don't worship Yahweh. They don't, they, these guys are, are the obvious sinner. And yet what's so fascinating is you're gonna see that now Philip goes on their turf. He goes where they are. And from that place, he invites them to know and follow Jesus. And what's gonna happen is you're gonna see a bunch of them come to know Christ and many of them are baptized. Many of them are baptized. You guys, I just can say, as I was studying this and I was thinking about you know, what, what we see here in this passage, it caused me to ask this question. Here's a question I think we need to ask today. Who are the obvious sinners today? Who are the obvious sinners of our time? So back then, the Samaritans, they were the obvious sinners. Maybe, the, maybe I could pose it this way. Who are the people, what, you know, and I, I don't wanna categorize people, but who are the people that the Bible-believing community would view as the moral outcasts, that the religious Bible-believing community would look at and say they are the obvious sinner. Who might that be? I think that there's a lot of things we might think of. Maybe we'd think of the drug addict or the substance abuser. Uh, maybe we might think of the sexually promiscuous. We might think of um, the person who has is, who is cheated, the adulterer person who has had multiple affairs. Maybe for some of us, the first place we go is we think of the homosexual community. Or maybe what we think about is we think about the racist, or we think about the bigot. 
Maybe what comes to our minds, we think about the ex-con, the person who has a criminal background. Maybe what we think of is the prostitute. Or maybe who comes to our mind, we think of the obvious sinner, is we think of the person who has aborted a pregnancy. Listen, the areas, all the areas that I just mentioned there include areas of clear and obvious sin. If you guys know the Bible, the Bible speaks about those things. But, but here, here's the question, is who is the obvious sinner that would come into our mind? Now, let me say this. Maybe for some of you, when I ask you that question, what, where your mind goes is you immediately think, that's me. Maybe you think I'm the, I'm the obvious sinner. I'm the person who has done or is included or has a history of the things that you just mentioned. That's me. Maybe for you, maybe for you, quite honestly, when you find yourself in settings like this, you always are thinking to yourself, you know, because of my background or because of my past or because of some of the decisions that I made or maybe even because of the current circumstances in my life right now, I I never feel like I fully belong in a place like this. I never feel like I can, I can ever really be totally accepted. When I, when I come to church or even when I go to life group, I look around and I just can't help but think, these people, they didn't struggle the way that I struggled. Or they, they didn't have the same kind of history that I had. And I, don't, I just don't feel like I could ever fully be someone who was included in a community like that because of the places and the things that I've done. And yet what's so fascinating is here, you're going to see that Philip takes the gospel and he takes it right to the obvious sinner, right where they are, and invites them to surrender their life and turn and follow Jesus. And here's the amazing thing. You're gonna read in this passage that these same Samaritans who turn and follow Christ receive the same Holy Spirit that the Jewish believers did in Acts chapter two. It's a mission to the outcast. It's a mission, first off, to the obvious sinner, but secondly, it's a mission to the socially excluded also to the socially excluded. Now, in this next section, what's gonna happen is Philip is gonna be in Samaria for a while. There's this interesting thing that happens with Simon the sorcerer, which is really weird. You should read it on your own. We're not gonna get into it. But the next part is Philip is now gonna be talking to an Ethiopian. So look what happens next. The Bible says in verse 27 that Philip started out and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch. He was an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candake, which means the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and on his way home, he was sitting in his chariot and he was reading Isaiah the prophet. Now, let me just pause here and say, there is so much we could say about this man and about this this interaction that Philip has with the Ethiopian. And actually, we're gonna dive deeper into that next week. And so I'm not gonna give you all the details, but here's what I want you to understand is what would have stuck out the most to the first century reader about this Ethiopian is actually not that he was an Ethiopian. That wouldn't have been the thing that would have stuck out. He was from Ethiopia, for sure. He would have been an African man, for sure. But it wasn't the color of his skin that would have stuck out to these people. What would have stuck out to to these people was that he was a eunuch, that he was a eunuch. In fact, five times in this section, this man is referred to simply as the eunuch. The eunuch, the eunuch, the eunuch, the eunuch, the eunuch. Once he is referred to as the Ethiopian. So why is it that it's so important that we understand that this guy was a eunuch? And here's why. Because back in this time, the fact that he was a eunuch would have made him a social outcast. I'll tell you what's obvious. If you look at this, what's obvious is that this was a guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, was a man 
who really genuinely wanted to have a relationship with God. Like, you can see that. Look, look what the Bible's gonna say. He was on his way home from worshiping in Jerusalem. He had traveled all the way to Jerusalem to go to the temple so that he could try to interact with Yahweh, with the God of the Israelites. And then on his way home, notice what the Bible says. He's reading from the book of Isaiah. He's reading from the Bible, from Isaiah. And you guys, you gotta understand, back in this time, it was a really difficult thing to get a copy of the scripture. Like today, we have it on our phones. We have it all over the place. But back then, it would have been immensely, uh, it would have been immensely costly to have like a copy of Isaiah. And yet here he is. On his ride home, he's reading the book of Isaiah. He's on his way from worshiping in Jerusalem. This is a guy who wants to know God. But here's the truth, is he, was never, he would never, ever fully be involved and included in the Jewish people. And why was that? It's because he was a eunuch. He was a, Deuteronomy chapter 23 actually says that eunuchs could never be fully embraced in the assembly of God's people. It's what the law said. Back in the first century, if you went to the Jewish temple, some of you guys know this, they had an inner court, they had an outer court. And the inner inner court was reserved for Jewish men who had to have been circumcised. It was for those who were ceremonially clean. There was an outer court. And the outer court was for the Gentiles and the outer court was for the eunuchs and those who were unclean. That's who the outer court was for. So even though this man was desperate to know God, he was never allowed any closer than the outer court. But here's the fascinating thing. The Bible's gonna tell us that this eunuch was reading Isaiah. And not only was he reading Isaiah, he was reading Isaiah 53. And Isaiah 53 is all about this suffering servant. There's a prophecy. And the prophecy says that one day there's gonna come this servant who's gonna suffer and who's gonna, who, who's gonna suffer for the people of Israel. And he's gonna absolutely change the landscape. In fact, in Isaiah 53, only a couple chapters later would be Isaiah 56. And you know what Isaiah 56 says? Let me read you what Isaiah 56 says. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let no eunuch complain. I'm only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the, to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbath, who choose what pleases me and who hold fast to my covenant. To them I will give, now notice this, within my temple and its walls. He was always on the outside. But he's saying that one day there's gonna come a time because of this suffering servant when even eunuchs are gonna be included and involved in a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. The eunuch is reading this passage and he says, who is this suffering servant? And he asks Philip, he says, tell me, please. Is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? And then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and he told him the good news about Jesus Christ. You guys see the mission is going to the socially excluded and it's meeting him right where he is. Philip says to him, this suffering servant is Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the one who's come to tear down these barriers that have, that have been keeping you from being fully included in the people of God. And now you're, in, you're involved and you're included. And the Bible says that on the spot, the man receives Christ as his savior. He gets baptized and he goes on his way rejoicing. You guys, again, as I was reading this, it caused me to ask the question, who would be the socially excluded in our day? Who would that be? For sure, in that time, it would be people like the eunuch, people who would be considered socially on the outside. They would be the ones who would be in the outer courts. Who would that be for us today? You know, I, think, I think maybe one of the questions this forces me to ask, and I think maybe for those of us who follow Jesus, it should cause us to ask is, 
Are there any unnecessary barriers or boundaries that Jesus came to tear down that we intentionally or unintentionally set up that keep people from being fully included, invited into the people of God? Do we do that? Or maybe I could phrase it this way. Are there any categories of people that I believe that they must first become something else and only then could they be invited to follow Jesus? You know, be honest with yourself. Ask yourself that question. If you're a follower of Jesus, ask that. Do you think there's any category of people that they first must become something else and only then could they be invited to follow Jesus? I think it's an important question to ask. Maybe for us, would you think that there's some people that you would think, man, they have to start or stop dressing a certain way and only then could they be invited to follow Christ? Or maybe for us, we think if, if, people would, if people would have a certain level of knowledge or if they would, if they would just take, you know, if they would have a certain level of, of theological education, then and only then could they then be fully accepted or invited to follow Jesus. Must a person become something else? Must they look like a certain way or act like a certain way to be included and invited in the people? Listen, must a Democrat become a Republican before they can first be invited to follow Jesus or vice versa? Now, let me be clear. For sure, the Bible's gonna say that every human being needs to turn from their sin before we follow Jesus. But here's my question. Are we guilty of requiring more than that? To, for inviting people to begin following Jesus because what we're gonna see is that this is a mission that Jesus has given to us and it is to go to the outcasts. It is to go to the obvious sinner. It is to go to the socially excluded. And lastly, the angry Pharisee. The angry Pharisee. You guys, I want you to see what happens at the beginning of chapter nine. This is probably the most famous conversion story of all time. Some of you guys are probably familiar with this one. So it says, meanwhile, Saul, Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and he asked for letters to the synagogue at Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Okay, he's persecuting the church, persecuting Christians. And look at this. And as he, was, as he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him and he fell to the ground and he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, blinded, he said, who are you, Lord? And then Jesus said, I'm Jesus. To which Saul probably said, oh no, I had it wrong. Oh no. And then he says, and, you're, and you are persecuting me, he said to him. Now, like I said, most famous conversion story probably in the Bible. This is a guy named Saul who later on changed his name and became, tell me, what was his name? Paul. Paul. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul is a pretty significant guy. Uh, the Apostle Paul was uh, probably the most prolific church planter in the first century. He wrote a massive portion of our New Testament. So many of the letters that you have in the New Testament of your Bible were penned by the Apostle Paul. He was used in amazing ways uh, to, to, uh, to advance the, the gospel of Jesus Christ all the way to Rome at the end of his life. But here's what you gotta know about Paul. Before he was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul. And who is Saul? Saul was an angry Pharisee. He was someone who would have grown up in the Jewish tradition and he would have been a guy who amongst the Jewish people had the right resume. 
In fact, can I just tell you a little bit about, let me show you what, what Saul says about himself. He writes about his previous life in Christ, before Christ, and he says this. He says, I was, this is his backstory, I was circumcised on the eighth day. Like, why is that important? Because that was essential for Jewish boys that they would start off that way to be kind of born into Judaism. So I started that way. Of the people of Israel, look what he says. I was of the tribe of Benjamin. I was a tribe of Benjamin. Now, why is that important? Well, remember how earlier I said there was 12 tribes, 10 of them defected, two of them remained faithful. Well, guess what one of those two was? Good old Benny. So he's like, dude, he's like, I had the right pedigree. I came from the right family, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's like, look, I was not the socially excluded. I was the socially elite. And look what he says. In regard to the law, I was a Pharisee. He's like, I was not the obvious sinner. I was a Pharisee. You guys, Pharisees were like the varsity level law keepers. He's like, no, I was the one that people looked up to. They admired me. I was the good church kid all the way from the very beginning. And as far as zeal, I persecuted the church for legalistic righteousness. Look at this. I was faultless. I was flawless. And listen, here's the thing we know about him. For as much as we know about him, we also know that Saul was full of anger. He was so angry. And he was specifically so angry that these Christians would go around and tell people that they could be forgiven no matter where they were at. He was infuriated with it. But all of that changed, all of it changed when Paul, Saul, was blindsided by the radical grace of the resurrected Jesus. Because look what happens. Jesus shows up and he says to him, why are you persecuting? Now notice this, I find this interesting. Me. He doesn't say, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting them? He doesn't say, hey, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? He says, you're persecuting me. You guys, this is an amazing truth. Jesus so deeply identifies himself with those who follow him. He so deeply identifies himself with this church that he says, you're persecuting me. And the Bible's gonna tell us that this interaction that Saul had with Jesus was so life-altering that the rest of his life was dramatically changed. Complete repentance. Yeah, I love so much. I actually love that the Apostle Paul gives a commentary on what happened in this moment in the book of 1 Timothy. Here's what he says. He says, even though I once was a blasphemer and a, and, a, and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. Now look what he says. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ was poured on me abundantly, along with the faith and the love that are in Christ. Now look what he says next. This is crazy. He says, what, what, was it that, what was it that hit him that day? It was the grace. It was the grace of Jesus. But then look what he says next. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves, deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now look what he says next. Of whom I'm the worst. No, wait, wait a minute, Paul. No way. That can't be right. You're not the worst. What about those obvious sinners? I'm the worst. What about those socially excluded, Paul? What about them? No, 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 I'm the worst. I'm the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, he repeats it. Christ Jesus might display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. You guys, here's what this causes me to ask. Who are the angry Pharisees of our day? Who are the angry Pharisees? Maybe 
Maybe some of us. I mean, come on, we gotta, we gotta start there. We're the church people, right? I mean, you guys, are the good, you guys are the good church people. You're here at the 11 o'clock hour and the Browns are playing today. You guys love Jesus so much more than those other people. And there's people who are watching online. You guys love, them, love Jesus way more than them. No, I'm just kidding, by the way. If you're online, it's not true. But what I'm saying is maybe, maybe it is. Maybe it's some of us. Maybe, maybe the angry Pharisee is the person, let's just be honest, the person who feels like we're more deserving than the, forgive, the forgiveness and acceptance of Jesus than anybody, than others might be. Maybe it's those of us who still somewhere in us believe that we can do things that would earn us favor with God. Maybe, maybe it's those who would rather see God call down fire and judgment on our enemies than, than, than see God pour out his spirit on them. Maybe, maybe it's those of us who are just so angry that God would even think and desire to show grace to those kind of people. Is that inside of us? Maybe it's those of us who cannot even imagine a scenario that God could work outside of our theological camp. And here, here's a point that I'm trying to make is the grace of Jesus Christ is for all and that the gospel comes to all, even the religiously self-righteous. And so where, where does this leave us? Well, I think as we kind of conclude our time, I wanna end by simply giving you four thoughts and questions as a way of wrapping it up. So here's, here's the, first, the first thought, the first concluding thought. I think, I think for sure we can conclude this. Look, the gospel's for everyone. The message of the gospel is for everyone. Even the most unlikely audiences and the most unlikely people, the gospel is to go out to everyone. The mission is to the outcast. And I think the question this should cause us to ask for those of us who follow Jesus is, do we think, do we believe that there's anybody who's too far gone? Do we believe that there's anyone who's too far gone to, to experience the radical life-transforming grace of Jesus to change them? Do we think that about anyone in our family, about anyone in our friends, about anyone in our community? Do we think that they're too far gone? Do we think that we're too far gone? And I think what that causes us to ask is, what would it, how would it impact the way that I view other people if I really believe that this was true, that the gospel is for everyone? Here's the second thing I think we have to ask. Are we ready to receive all kinds of outcasts in our midst. I think for those of us who follow Jesus, for our church, for our life groups, we have to be prepared to ask this question. If this is a mission to the outcast, are we ready to receive all kinds of outcasts in our midst? All kinds. I mean, and of all varieties, the obvious sinner. Do we have space for the obvious sinner in our meetings, in our spaces? Do we have space to love the socially excluded people who don't look like us, people who don't act like us. Do we have room for that? Do we have space? How about this one? Do we have space to even extend grace to the religious, angry Pharisees, the people who are full of self-right? Do we have grace for all of those people? And here's another question I wanna ask you. This question right here, how might this question impact or instruct the way that you view your Thanksgiving celebration this year? Who you invite who you sit next to, who you talk to and interact with. If the mission is to the outcast, how might that change the way you even view the holiday? How might this change the way you view your workplace? How might that change the way you view the cafeteria at your school and who you interact with and who you sit with? I think it's an important question. 
to ask. And let me say this other thing. Here's another important reality. Listen, I think it's, I think it's important we understand this. Jesus is gonna meet you right where you're at, right, right where you're at. The gospel meets you right where you're at. But Jesus loves us too much to leave us where we're at. He always wants to change us and transform us. And so here's what I need you to hear me say. This is true for every person in this room, whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're investigating Jesus. When when a person comes to Christ, it always requires that we turn from sin. Jesus will meet us right where we are, no matter where you are, no matter how far you are, he will meet you right where you are, but he loves you too much to keep you where you are. And what it requires for every single person to follow Jesus is that we turn from our sin and we make Jesus the Lord of our life. That is true for the obvious sinner. If you're the obvious sinner, Jesus is calling you to turn from your sin, to find forgiveness and acceptance in him and to follow him. And that is true for the angry Pharisee. God is calling us to turn from our sin and to follow him and make him the Lord of our life. And here's the last one. And with this, I'll ask the band to come up. This is probably the most important question, which is why I left it for last. Can you, can we see ourself as the outcast? Here's what I believe is true. I don't think that we can ever live out the mission of Jesus to the outcasts until we first recognize and understand ourselves as the outcasts. You guys, as I've been talking about these different kinds of outcasts, my guess is that maybe you've been thinking in categories and maybe even for yourself, you might put yourself in one of those categories. But here's, here's the, the, the reality, is I think that we can only really live on mission to the outcast when we see that we are all three, every single one of us, we are all three kinds of outcasts. What do I mean by that? We are all the obvious sinner. Every single one of us is the obvious sinner to God. Now, some of us are more obvious sinners to each other, right? For example, so for example, um, Jordan back here. Uh, it's way, way more obvious sinner, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm just picking on Jordan, just a little, little levity. We're, we're all, all of us are the obvious. What does Romans 3 say? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's everybody. That's all of us. And it's not until we understand that we were the ones who had sinned against God and that he, in his love and grace and compassion, has come and has forgiven us of our sins and invites us to be part of his family. It's only when we realize that we were the recipients of that kind of forgiveness that we can turn and show that same kind of, that same kind of love to even people who are far, far, far outcasts in our eyes. I think in the same way, it's only when we see that we are the socially excluded. You guys, we are all the socially excluded in God's eyes. You're like, what do you mean by that? Well, you know what the Bible says? The Bible says that we were enemies of God, that we were alienated from him, but that he, in his radical hospitality, has invited us in to experience the forgiveness of sins and to become part of his family. I don't think it's until we realize that we are the beneficiaries of a divine hospitality that we can extend that same kind of hospitality to outcasts in our midst. And I don't think that we'll ever be able to show grace to the angry Pharisee until we see that every single one of us is full of pride, that every single one of us is full of self-righteousness. We're always trying to say why it is that we are more acceptable than they are or whoever that might be. And I think it's only when we realize that God has shown us grace in our pride that we actually can extend grace to those who are in pride. Here's the truth. Every single one of us has been excluded. We are all outcasts because of our sin. But in Jesus Christ, God has overcome that exclusion and he has included us and invited us to follow him. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. Let's pray. 
Jesus, I want to say thank you that you came for the outcasts. I think about what you said, that you didn't come for the, for the healthy, you came for the sick. And Father, that is a reflection of your heart. That is a reflection of the mission that you're on. And so I pray that you would meet us where we are, God, and we're all outcasts in different places, but we all need you. And so I ask you, Jesus, that you would help us, Lord, help us to see ourselves as the outcasts that we were, and that in you, that you have made us outcasts no longer, that we are included into your family because of what you've done in Christ. So Father, as we go from this place, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit, and I also pray that you would send us on your mission. Help us to love those that you love and see people as you see them, Lord, so that we could experience the kind of love that you have, that the love that you give to us could flow through us into those around us. So I wanna ask these things, I wanna pray for this. In Jesus' name.